us for another segment of I Art New York. The music intro we've just been listening to was Act Casually by More Than Skies. I Art New York is brought to you by Radio Free Brooklyn and your hosts Isabella Gola and myself, Rebecca Major. I'm a visual artist studying Masters in Art History at Hunter College and a curatorial intern at the Jewish Museum. And Isabella is a visual artist, independent curator, and is head of visual arts and design programming at the Polish Cultural Institute, New York. iArt New York is a talk show that explores current exhibitions and events in and around New York. We compare and review museum exhibitions and, like today, bring you interviews with guests who choose their career path in the arts, such as curators, critics, artists, and performers. So thank you for joining us for our ninth segment, and we're super pleased to have in our studio today our guests, Lauren Hirschfield and Kat Riles. So thank you guys for joining us. This is really special. Um, yeah, thank yeah you for thanks having for having us. us. Welcome to iArt New York. Thank you. Lauren and Kat are the curatorial team behind Paradise Palace, which we'll talk about more in depth in just a moment. But first, I'd like to give a brief background on their art background. Both Lauren and Kat are visual artists and independent curators. Lauren received her BFA in painting, arts management, and art history from SUNY Purchase. She has freelanced as an arts administrator and curator for Super Chief Gallery, Four Heads Portal, the annual arts festival on Governor's Island, Power Plant, and Art Money. And Kat has received... <laughs> her MFA in Visual Arts and Museum Education from Brooklyn College. She's worked in education at the Rubin Museum and the Museum of Arts and Design, and her artwork has been exhibited at Governor's Island, Brooklyn Fireproof, and the Wasaic Project. Recently, she was a visiting curator at Residency Unlimited and also at her alma mater, Brooklyn College. Lauren and Kat have created a curatorial partnership that has culminated in numerous exhibitions in New York City over the past couple of years. Most recently in June, they juried a group exhibition entitled Light at 440 Gallery in Brooklyn. Also in June, they produced the group exhibition entitled Twist and Twine, guest juried by Tiffany Smith, organized in partnership with Shashama. And earlier this year, between March 5th through the 11th, they exhibited a curated booth entitled To Be One and Myself, at the Spring Break Art Show, which included the works by three artists, Jen Dwyer, Sophie Parker, and Tom Princell. So um, getting back to their ongoing project that I mentioned earlier, Paradise Palace, it was launched two years ago and is an ongoing curatorial project that aims to give artists a platform by promoting patronage and visibility. They've mounted numerous exhibitions and related art events under the banner already, including eight group shows last year. So you've been really busy. Clearly, having two events just um, a couple of months ago in June must mm -hmm. be very uh, frenetic experience. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> but it was ne good. Needless to say, we're taking a little break right now. Uh -huh. Yeah. Summer. Yeah. Yeah. We're allowing ourselves some time this summer, which I think is pretty... Normal for the art world, so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Even MoMA is taking a, a, a break yeah. mm -hmm. for their recent expansion, mm -hmm. celebrating 90th anniversary, but also trying to be more inclusive and reconfigure their permanent collection. Exactly. They are reopening, actually, in October. And I'll yeah. actually, oh, I was thinking about that, yes, in a, a context of your um, uh, exhibition, 
with yeah. some twine, but that's that, sort we'll of get to that later. Okay. What we're doing right now too is yeah. like using we're July making, to like yeah. figure out like our next steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from you know, what I grow. gleaned from your website, you have a few upcoming events. So you have the um, the film curatorial project mm-hmm. that's starting in September, mm-hmm. and also in September it's in. Like it's an like artist a making event. workshop. Yeah, yeah. making workshop. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the weaving workshop. Which we just had. Which you just had. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if that's your downtime. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I, know well, it's, I know. It's funny because we always, um, yeah, we always end up having one or two things a month regardless. I just think that for us, it's a certain amount of consistency wanting to continue to have some sort of um, archive every month. Um, yeah. yeah, but it's. It's nice. It's nice. So the September um, Artist Curated Cinema program that you were talking about, um, it's coming back in September. We've been doing it since January biweekly, and we just decided to take a break for July and August. Um, But we're excited to come back to it. It looks really interesting. Thank you. It's a really fun program. It's a great program. And where will that be? Well, it's been at Bizarre Bar, but they're also currently rebranding. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if it will still be called Bizarre Bar in September. Okay, but, so we should just look at your website. Yeah, yeah, but um, physically it will be in that space. Oh, well, yeah. I see. Okay, so well, it's the same location. Yeah, yeah and that's in Bushwick on mm-hmm. um, Bushwick Avenue, I believe, right? Uh, Broadway, Broadway and Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the Myrtle Stop, right? Or yeah, is it it's, Flushing? It, no, it's, it's Myrtle. Like literally yeah. across the street from the Myrtle Broadway J Stop, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, it's really accessible, which we're definitely that's into. important. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For so. Sure. Um, I'd like to first start by asking about your creation, Paradise Palace. You know, fill us in about its history and had the two of you already been working as a curatorial team prior to its uh, launching or did Paradise Palace mark the beginning of your both of your curatorial endeavors? Well, Lauren had already been uh, on her way to being a curator Mm -hmm. before the project started. And she actually met me through the Governor's Island Art Fair that was mentioned earlier that she worked for. Um, I was an exhibiting artist in 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, So we connected that way. Uh, She curated my work in a pop-up exhibition um, with Shem at Art Helix. Mm -hmm. And at the opening, we just, like, really got to talking and then followed up, had some more, like, casual meetings and then we were like you know what we have a lot of similar ideas and I really just want to do something I feel like stuck in the place where I'm at and like I really want to do something and so we just took off from there off from there yeah it was pretty quickly too how Mm -hmm. we went from first meeting within like that small maybe two or three month period between what she had said curating the work and the show and then just staying connected we kind of decided to start this Mm -hmm. so it's crazy how quickly we were working every single day together Mm. as if we had known each other for there's a lot of moving parts to it there's the website which is quite complex because there's like different things on there that you've got going you Mm -hmm. have the artist's registry um if that's the flat files Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh which aren't physical flat files but they're on the website flat files and then you uh, also feature artists and well you but, have a blog yeah there's you still- have a, a nice resource uh database with news section and i i was going to ask a question about the john mitchell um essay on john mitchell that was published in october magazine yeah 
Um, I really enjoyed that a lot, um, and especially considering uh, John Mitchell and her stance in, you know, the feminist narrative, mm-hmm. and especially in uh, not only considering abstract expressionism, but I, I noticed that you look at that um, a lot. Yeah, definitely. That that article was published actually a couple years prior. I, I believe, yeah, I think it was in maybe 2014, 2015, but um, the blog is mostly archival, but I will from time to time, exactly like you're saying, like find really wonderful resources or articles that feel really pertinent to what we're either showcasing or conversations that Kat and I are having on the back end that feel like they really resonate with our mission. Um, and that was a really great example of an article that I stumbled upon that was over two years old, but still felt really relevant to everything that was going on at the time um, at the end of last year. So yeah, I was sort of like, this is a great resource. People should be reading about this. So exactly, because the article from October uh, that was published in 2018 by Alexa Galtard, it highlights some of the key points from Mitchell's long conversation with scholars like Irving Sandler, Linda Nochlin, Yves Michaud, um, and where she's uh, revealed uh, how she's, uh, you know, fueled her expressive career, her mm-hmm. uh, the erupted, ecstatic, erratic brushstrokes. But um, she was also part of the women's, uh, you know, abstract expressionist movement mm-hmm. in the 60s, along with Helen Frankenthaler. Mm-hmm. And as we know, um, uh, they were dismissed from the discourse by Clement Greenberg at the time. Um, and uh, especially, uh, I know a story about Helen Frankenthaler was uh, copied, but basically her technique with the soaked canvases was copied by Morris Lewis and Kenneth Noland, who created their Veil uh, series in 1954 using Helen's methods. Mm-hmm. And they were completely overlooked by Clement Greenberg at the time he was praying and worshiping uh, Morris Lewis and Noland, as we all know, but uh, overlooked uh, her contribution. Mm-hmm. And uh, the same, uh, you know, the same thing happened to many women. At, oh, yeah. At the In time. fact, I, I had a conversation. This is just a really short story with with a, a second generation abstract expressionist who's now in her mid 80s, 90s. And when she was a young woman in Paris, she had a show um, and she was in her 20s and her name is Amaranth Ehrenholt. So the critic did not couldn't decipher if she was a female or male, mm-hmm. huh. wrote a positive review about her. And when he met her in person, he was shocked and he said, you're a woman. And he basically said, I will never write about you again. <sighs> mm. Wow. And when did you say this was? That was in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we still have this issue like there's that really well-known um, incident that happened with, do you guys know um, Penelope Gazin, mm, who started mm-hmm. uh, Witchy? Witchy. Like, Witchy. Yeah. Kind of like Etsy, but a little bit more like punk gothic mm-hmm. um, vibes. And when her and her business partner got started, they were trying to, you know, they're making an online store and they're trying to get it up and running. They were having a lot of trouble with like working with IT professionals, um, just really treating them like, you know, they're dumb and like they don't have time for that. And then they invented uh, an owner of their business, Kevin, I think yeah. it was. Mm-hmm. And then they started watching the, like how everybody's tune would change whenever they're getting all these emails. And I think they would even have like the same email chain where they'd be like, they'd be, you know, let me talk to your 
CEO or whatever, and they'd be mm-hmm. like, okay, let me get him, <laughs> you, you know, email. and then be like, hi, I'm, you know, certain such and such. And then the tune would change and it's, yeah, it's still happening. That was like, how has, two how years has ago. your experiences been so far in regards to that type of thing? Like, have you had to resort to giving yourselves male names? <laughs> no, actually no. it's been pretty good. I yeah. just think that we're really loud and assertive and it's get out of our way or we'll run you over so yeah but sometimes but yeah following this idea of inclusiveness yeah. and yeah. uh thinking about institutions like moma now mm-hmm. which is closed uh, reconfiguring their collection like i mentioned earlier yeah um i was thinking about your mission and which is looking at emerging artists underrepresented artists mm-hmm. so what does the idea of inclusiveness uh, mean to you and for in the context of your mission specifically to what uh, underrepresented groups are you giving voices are you thinking about the me too movement um, are you thinking about uh, the geographical um, you know giving voices to more uh, represented representational uh, sample from new york city or mm-hmm. the united states or international mm-hmm. how do you approach that topic of uh, inclusiveness? I mean, I think we're mostly looking at people's backgrounds, like Mm -hmm. what they culturally or um, what they culturally identify with, how they they identify with their gender, how they identify with their race or ethnicity, and trying to make sure that um, as much as we can have an even distribution of different voices coming in to the space. Um, And a lot of times we'll look at, you know, they're some of the people that we're working with are emerging artists that are like well on their way. And then there's other people who have been at it for a while and they're still struggling to get their work out there. So mm-hmm. maybe some older artists. Um, or folks that, you know, have not for whatever reason been able to get access to the same resources as right. other people and, you know, um, just can't quite seem to get the foot in the right door, you know, however you want to say it. Um, yeah, inclusivity is a tough thing because, um, well, it's really not actually, it's, it's really quite simple. It's just being really aware of what you're doing, I guess you could say, but it seems. And doing research. And doing your research. Really, it's just doing a lot of your research. But I think the problem is that people are lazy. And I think a lot of times people just fall back on, um, you know, like really mm-hmm. easy consumable ideas or um, trends and they follow those without recognizing the repercussions or or recognizing um, who they're not reaching or who they're not um, engaging with. Yeah, um, I mean, it, yeah, it seemed from your past exhibitions that I've seen uh, online that you've really included quite a large range of subjects and as well as materials. Mm-hmm. You've had exhibitions that have worked with textile, cultural identity the body through the lens of the grotesque, digital art, female identity. So it seems that you're very conscious about fluctuating mm-hmm. and not, let's say, kind of settling into one category. And yeah. and that must be, that's clearly not accidental. It's something that you plan out and, and yeah. balance. And another totally. thing is like part of like us being active, like, independent curators and artists, you know, I'm going to residencies, I'm, I'm meeting other artists and people mm-hmm. and, and I see other people's work that I'm like, you're not getting, like, I love your work and you're not getting the exposure that you need, you know? So that's very helpful to be actually in it and swimming around in it where mm-hmm. I think there are some um, curators and projects that are much more removed 
from the actual life of an artist and that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, definitely us just getting out there and meeting people and um, yeah, Mm -hmm. having people submit their work and yeah. Um, Is it hard sometimes if you see, you know, let's say in a few months you see artwork that you've already um, had a show on, let's say. Yes, that's painful. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like the editing process. I've it's, been noticing that a lot lately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but it's also painful when we're putting the shows together. Like we usually curate based around a topic. Right. And then we, we find the artists that fit mm-hmm. and put it together like a puzzle. Um, and so we'll have like a long list of people that we're like, I'm in love with everybody's work and it all fits. And then you have to, you know, start mm-hmm. eliminating cause we, we have a small space. Yeah. And I, that's another thing I noticed is that the shows, uh, are about six individuals there. You had take, one yeah. show that was like, I think it was a, a summer show. So it was a large group show yeah. and that was about 30 artists. But other than that, they're pretty select. And I believe the reasoning behind that is that you want uh, not just one artwork from that artist, like mm. at least three or four or yeah. something to kind of understand yeah. their language and mm-hmm. their narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think going back to the inclusivity thing, it's trying like, you know, we don't, we're very much this artist forward space and we're also artists and, and creators that are very much in the community as much as we can, like Kat was saying. So, you know, giving, opportunity to as many people as we can you know we're not as interested in having these grand solo shows um you know maybe down the line we'll be able to build up our visibility and support to offer that to people but right now we're most interested in having group shows because it allows us to show as many artists as we can fit in our space at the time and therefore just continues to you know include as many people as possible and further build those communities um yeah. Yada, yada, yada. And just so. for our listeners um, who are interested and don't feel like poking around on, you know, clicking away, I'm going to just list some <laughs> of your shows from last year and to kind of have an idea of like the, the variety of mm-hmm. the feel. Um, from November through December, the exhibition was entitled After Image mm-hmm. and it was a group show that investigated fabric and textile. The works reverberated with optical vibrancy and reconsidered the craft of quilting within the hierarchies of, of economics. In September and October, you had an exhibition, Yo Tengo, So Tengo, Mantengo, I Have, Hold, Keep, mm-hmm. a six-person exhibition on ritual, intimacy, spirituality, and healing through the lens of each artist's Latinx identity, referencing Mexican, Chilean, Puerto Rican, Cuban, and Argentine heritages. The works shown discuss personal stories from each artist. July through August 2018, you had the show Midnight. It was the first annual summer open call, and it featured 32 artists from across the U.S. The works responded to dystopian and utopian urban environments. Mm-hmm. April of 2018 was the group exhibition Dimensions of Alterity, exploring the grotesque, the chimeric, the body, and the carnivalesque as stemming from a European historical trajectory. February through March, you had the exhibition. It just sort of happened one day. That exhibition explored notions of identity, loss, and coping, and then you had an all-women exhibition in September entitled Wise Blood, featuring seven artists who explored their evolving womanhood. So, yeah, it's really quite a range. 
Mm-hmm. That was nice to hear out loud, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I was just smiling. I was smiling. I was like, wow, those were some really great shows. And not to like toot my own horn, but really like I, you know, when you're in it and you're just like, okay, what what's the next six months or year looking like? You take, you kind of forget to take a moment and look back at all the success that you've had and, and all of the really wonderful ideas that we've been able to bring to life with the partnerships of these amazing artists that we've worked with. Um so that was nice. Thank you. Thank oh, you yeah. for doing and that. And actually, I forgot to mention one that started that year, which was called, which was an online exhibition of digital mm-hmm. art called Body Farm. Oh, yeah, that was And fun. that was exploring culture and heritage, utilizing the Internet and digital mediums. Um, so that's really cool, too, because then you're switching platforms from physical space to the Internet. Mm-hmm. And um, so is yeah. that still up, actually? Is that still accessible? No, it was no. just no. for, just for that same. month. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the themes that you tend to gravitate towards revolve around issues surrounding identity, mostly. Yeah. A lot of largely. And, um, so any form of identification with uh, either a group, like represent, group uh, of uh, representation mm-hmm. pertaining identity. Um, I was thinking about the Twist and Twine, the second annual summer open call show on which you were guest uh, jurors. Because it has a political undertone, mm-hmm. I think the most political out of uh, all uh, other shows. It opened on June seven and it closed June thirtieth. Correct. It was hosted off-site uh, in partnership with Cheshama, like Rebecca mentioned, and it featured works uh, by Naomi Nakazato, Michelle mm-hmm. Reese, Kiera Branker, mm-hmm. and it responded to the themes of the roots, mm-hmm. the personal the geographic history, nature, and the environment. So it's a pretty broad take on the idea yeah. of identification and, and roots, heritage. Uh, ref, uh, so reflecting on the issues of immigration, memory, loss, fam- family structure, uh, which is in shutters right now when mm-hmm. we look at political landscape with a zero tolerance policy and family separation at the border, uh, which is, you can't ignore this. It has impact on everyone. Emotional, you can't get, get out, you know, this, these images out of your uh, memory, like the recent one with the father and, and the daughter mm-hmm. um, uh, drowned in the Rio Grande. You can't get rid of these images from your head while mother witnessed, uh, you know, the, them crossing to, to Mexico into Texas, New York, Brownsville. Um, and we are thinking about the, um, uh, you know, the, the recent legislative changes that the USCIS, the, the US Immigration you know, uh, Department has implemented. The tariffs uh, you know, uh, threatened on Mexico. So are you thinking about all these issues right now and uh, how What's the commentary that you're offering? What's the alternative um, uh, insight that you're offering through the works that you presented? There's one uh, neon work that uh, from the images uh, that I saw um, that uh, that stuck in my mind from the show that said Satan is happy with your progress. Uh, <laughs> that was like a neon. Uh, I don't know who who is the author, but it's quite uh, literal. Yeah. And strong. Sometimes we need the literal message to stay 
yeah in your head just like that image of the drowned father well, and the daughter well, it's funny yeah that the two, light two things about that yeah. yeah the light show ended up being a really dark show <laughs> so yeah so the, the the neon piece that you're talking about is actually from the show that we guest juried light at 440 gallery right um and the three artists that you mentioned for the twist and twine show um are three of 34 that i think we ended up having at the open call show those were our juried um winners um, so th- I would definitely say that they're ones to focus on at the, at the start of the conversation simply because our guest juror, Tiffany Smith, certainly saw that those three um, artists' works responded most to all of the themes that you're talking about. Um, I think for them, their journeys were really personal. Um, I mean, I think the best work that can respond to those themes are coming from really personal places. Um, well, I think also, like, in terms of, like the most political shows that we do, it tends to be our open call. And yeah. we try to pick a topic that is broad, but related related to urban living, mm-hmm. particularly in New York City, because we like to try to highlight New York artists um, through the open call. And that's typically who applies. So we want to kind of give people the freedom to really like cover a topic. So it could be very, you know, extreme political or it could be very not. And mm-hmm. so you can really get that like well-wound, well, well-rounded um, understanding of a topic, but that's where like we're getting some people submitting to us and we can sort of um, shape how that exhibition comes together and how those topics come through. Yeah. I think that we definitely selected the theme this year roots, like you mentioned um, because it was broad and it allowed a lot of people like you had just said to um, consider it in many ways, but um, definitely the prompt leaned in a very political way with all those um, hot button terms you were using um, with that were definitely relating to all of what was going on lately. And we definitely think about that when we are curating our shows because our shows are so thematic. Um, we can't help but consider what's going on in the social political landscape um, and think about the ways that we can consider certain artists and create a visual conversation about um what's going on with that in ways that we can respond to it. And in regards to your question about, you know, what are those answers and what sort of um, conversations came out of the open call show twist and twine. um, I mean, a lot of the works that were there responded to um, a very broad amount of topics related to the word roots. I think a lot of the works responded to people's gender identities, um, cultural identities, Um, and I think it just reiterated how, um, diverse everybody is here in the U S and, and sort of celebrating that. Um, so that wasn't really special for me, I think, to be able to give voices to all those folks, um, and just allow them the space to have their conversations about who they are, where they come from and, you know, all the other topics related to that. So, well, it's also interesting that, um, the majority of the show was like, women identifying mm-hmm. or non-binary artists correct you know and that's like who was applying to that open call and who's following us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that was an interesting mm-hmm. discovery that we weren't really aware of yeah i mean um, we definitely try to consider um you know we look at the group at the end and sort of make sure that we feel like we're trying to represent as many people as we can but um especially for an open call show you don't want to really look at that because you don't want to have that be a part of it especially in the beginning, you really want to just be responding to the work and how strong it is. Um, and, but yeah, it's true. At the end, Kat and I were like, well, there it is again. 
80% women identifying are non-binary. I mean, that was just like, you could see on our like yeah. Google form, like graph, like when people responded with like their age and like where they came, it was like mm-hmm. 70% women. Or, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. That applied. Yeah. And that's probably also why a lot of the work shows that we've been curating, um, have been so much about identity and, um, yeah, just about identity because most people that support our space and have responded to all that we've been discussing have been women identifying and queer artists. And so naturally those people are on our mind. And so we want to figure out ways that we can incorporate them into shows. And so, you know, through that snowball effect, the themes that we come up with that can really um, discuss those artists' work end up being about those different types of identities. And I'm happy with that. I Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. far, I'm really proud of all the shows that we've done. Sounds fascinating and very relevant and very necessary. Very necessary. For the the discourse that's happening right now. Yeah. Do you identify yourselves as feminists? Oh, yeah. And do you identify with the Me Too movement? Would you elaborate that through you? How does that is digested through your system? And how do you project that through your lenses as curators and and as an artist, especially you, Kat, and addressing this question to you also um i mean yes i definitely identify with the me too movement i think i mean most women whether they want to admit it or not do um definitely there's a i would say i feel like when people look at my work it's not super apparent that there's feminist undertones to it but maybe there is there's a lot of like abject and thinking about women's bodies and looking at the monstrous feminine coming through my work and monstrous feminine being sort of like rooted in men's fear of women's bodies and like mm-hmm. women's bodies being a site of um, death as well as birth. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of my work includes like really fleshy things like body parts are all over the place and they're kind of rotting and falling off. It's, it's a lot of silicone and like latex and things like that. But I also use very overt, like, gender reference uh materials you know like rhinestones and um it it tends to be seen as a very feminine thing to uh decorate your body change your hair you know paint your nails and so i'm very fascinated with these ways that we alter our bodies to send out signals to the world um and also how they tend to revolve around the feminine and especially when you're thinking about like sort of the the Baroque period and coming to the end of that era where men were also just as decorated and um, frilly, uh, I guess you could say, and how it moved into this more like streamlined, hard um, yeah. look, you know, and then it was very like started to really separate and divert in two different directions. Yeah. I would love to speak more about your work just um, for a brief moment. We can get to it later or... No. If, if I could ask, because yeah, I looked at your website and I'm really intrigued by a couple of things. Um, and then I, I would love to move to Lauren's take on feminism. And that would be so, so, so uh, Kat, I looked at your website and I'm really um, into a, especially a couple of series that's a photograph series. Mm-hmm. But you work uh, besides photography with installation, sculpture, embroidery mm-hmm. and sewing. I actually love that, the, the yeah. knitting and sewing. So that, uh, I'm sorry, the pin type portraits and the anthropomorphous series, mm-hmm. uh, which I assume was done with a specific technique, mm-hmm. which looks like daguerreotype to me. Yeah. So it's like the 
the cousin of the digger, the daguerreotype. So it came a couple of years after this process. Ten types came right before film. And actually the one that I used, um, hardcore nerds will use wet plate. Um, <laughs> but it's a lot more expensive and way more caustic. It's really hard. You have to get a lot of equipment, have proper ventilation, all this stuff. Um, I use a silver gelatin emulsion. So it's essentially what is on film, but in liquid form. And so I pour that on my plates and I put a, a reversal in my developer. So it comes out of, as a positive. It looks very close to the actual wet plate tintypes. So these are called dry plate tintypes. Um, and because they figured out it, it was so quick to go to film once the, the emulsion, um, silver gelatin emulsion was invented, tintypes ended up, these dry plate tintypes ended up being sort of like novelty. Like you could go to a carnival and like get your tintype done um so it was kind of the like outcast i guess of mm -hmm. how the large are the negatives um so they're four by five mm -hmm. and i shot all of those um images in camera and that was sort of like the direction where i started making sculptures and moving away from photography um i you know did all the costuming it was hours of work of somebody sitting still and then i had to photograph it had to make sure every the chemicals were okay that I didn't get accidentally exposed any of my plates and <laughs> um yeah it was a, it took a long time to finish that project but the project is um definitely looking at tends to be a theme in my work is like uh, sort of the humans human relationship to the environment um and how we think of ourselves versus the environment or like as a separate thing and so I was looking a lot at I was thinking about um like how we tend to think of the natural world and in terms of collection and curiosities, but also looking at um, how we view each other and otherness and collecting and um, exploitation. And I was going through a lot in my head at that time. I mostly was a portrait photographer and I just, I feel like a lot of, there's a lot of problems with exploitation and photography. And so I started kind of not wanting to, be part of that anymore. You know, like you photograph somebody and then you sell the piece and you're basically selling somebody's image. Um, that kind of, I got stuck on that. Interesting. You mentioned the word otherness. Uh, some of them, especially the ones with prosthetics, with mm -hmm. this, from the prosthetic series, mm -hmm. with like horns and mutilations that uh, emerge from the body. Mm -hmm. They really look like vintage photos from like the 20s, 30s, uh, the New Deal era. And we yeah. know that there were so many photographers that were sponsored by the New Deal, by President Roosevelt's uh, New Deal. And we are in an international uh, human rights crisis right now. Mm -hmm. So I, I was thinking about how those times fall, you know, the, mm. the, the, the Great Depression and yeah, the, the Rosa I, Lange and Walker Evans, uh, all, all, all these yeah. photographers that were finding the peculiar in the everyday and that's what I thought of uh, your photos, oh. that they were very contemporary renditions of that. But I was also thinking of Matthew Barney a little bit. With yeah, the I get that a lot. With um, the Chromaster series, where you influenced or inspired I actually that? didn't really know too much about him at the time, but people kept saying that to me, and I was like, oh, okay, I, guess I should look at him. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was, wasn't really looking at that, the, those photographers in that era. I was more looking at, like, sort of the history of, um, exploitation and, um, 
you know, thinking about Barnum and Bailey and like scientists that were like cataloging body features from different groups of people um, and creating this otherness and creating historical racism too. like just thinking about how much art history, like the origins of art history has been part of that system or has created that system. Sorry. Um, like, so yeah, like the systematic, uh, yeah, you know, like thinking about polychrome and how there's the persistence of the white marble, um, when really in, mm-hmm. in antiquity, everything was painted mm-hmm. and everything had skin tone. Um, and there was a diversity of skin tones in the Mediterranean that, and just different cultures all blending together that were very much highlighted, um, in those times. But, um, there's just this love affair with the white marble. I forget who the, um, I think he's a German um, historian from the 19th century that like wrote like the first art history book. And it, it really like details how like, these are the ideal, the, the male is the ideal form. The white marble is perfect. And um, yeah, I mean, just like Clement Greenberg, totally this, this, yeah, he's a turd. <laughs> Goodbye. Okay, that's the last time we mentioned his name on this podcast. Goodbye, you're buried. R.I.P. Yeah, Greenberg forever. <laughs> forever. Forever. And Lauren, what about you? How does um, feminism come through in your curatorial process? Um, and also, like, how do you both like consider the legacy of? New York in regards to the curatorial history that's been ongoing. Are there curators or gallerists that you've looked at for or research that have aligned with your thinking? I feel like we're going to have two different answers. Yeah, it's a very two part question. Okay, I'll I'll briefly talk about the first part. You were just sort of asking how I consider feminism in my curatorial practice. Um, I mean, I, I think that I don't really think a lot about feminism on a day to day because I think it's just like part of my day to day thinking. Does that make any sense? Like, I don't, I don't say, I don't wake up and I'm like, oh, I'm going to be like, I really need to think about how I can be a feminist today. I just think I am. And so I don't really consider it all the time, but I think, and so I think naturally because of how I live my life every day, being really conscious of. Um, you know, being inclusive and, and my curatorial practice is very much looking at ways to um, further accessibility for artists, which is also a big reason as to how Kat and I got so connected and started this project to begin with. Um, yeah, I think I definitely just look at a lot of women identifying artists and um, think it's about... what we tend to be drawn to. Yeah, like we don't, because we, we won't know are who feminists. the actual artist is. We'll just be like, wow, I really like this. And, and then, then it just... will turn out that they're female identifying for the most part. And we're like, well, of course. Yeah. What we're... What drawn we're drawn to. to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, in terms of like aesthetic, my work curatorially is I'm very intrigued by... Um, I've been really obsessed with soft sculpture over the last like 18 months. Um, and I've been really into the tactile and the ethereal, and I've been looking a lot more the at craft, craft and site specific work and, um, the ephemeral, um, and really thinking about ways that curatorially you can build spaces that are very ephemeral, but can incorporate very archival works. And so, um, I'm, I'm a painter at heart too. Like so my background is, so I'm always a, such a sucker for painting and very process forward painting. Um, and I, uh, you know, taught thinking about just the general curatorial landscape now and kind of going back into Kat and I together, 
Um, I mean, I think that we're always looking at spaces here in New York and beyond that are just very in line with the missions that we're thinking about of, you know, what spaces are being really considerate of artists, what spaces are um, doing right by them by, you know, giving them honorariums, you know, giving them their dues, you know, making sure that people are being paid fairly for all of their labor. Um, You know, Pioneer Works is a really great example of a space that has cultivated a really fantastic community in Brooklyn um, that... I mean, it does more than I, I mean, I, I hope that we can do as much as Pioneer Works does. Um, you know, they're really fantastic at just creating space for people, um, building an incredible workshop platform. Trestle Art Space is a really also wonderful example. So I think I don't really look as much at individual curators and galleries. Mm-hmm. I think we look a lot more at organizations. Mm-hmm. We're just, we're really interested in alternative models. Yeah. And, and anytime we find something that we've, never heard of or we didn't think of that approach like that really makes our hearts pound yeah, yeah. really um, jives yeah we, it, and, and we and yeah. you've worked with shashama which is also like yeah. very um out of the box yeah like, shashama is a really amazing nonprofit. i was really excited when i first found out about them a couple of years ago and have just been thinking about all of the ways we could work with them and this came together really Perfectly. Um, the team is really wonderful. And yeah, just thinking about the history of Shashama and um, I mean, Anita Durst is a really wonderful woman and, you know, her founding and I think it was 90, 95. It was, a it was a while ago. Yeah, it's yeah. been around for a while. I think it first started with her um, like she had a, a big mentor that worked in theater. I forget his name. Um, but um, the death of that mentor, I think, really oh, pushed her to get into a place where she wanted to continue this legacy of from her mentor of um, accessibility and creating space for artists and making it as affordable as possible. Um, And, you know, obviously her family is a very um, prominent real estate development family in New York. Um, So she she had access. She to had these access spaces, to all those spaces. And she became. Yeah. She got creative with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, it's just one of many organizations around the country. Um, I'm sure around the world that are, you know, fighting the good fight and yeah, doing and all think- they can to bring those spaces to artists and just think about ways that we can level the playing field for people. Yeah, because in New York today, it's just so much more difficult to. Mm-hmm find and access spaces and um, carve out a space, mm-hmm. so to speak. And mm-hmm. so have you, you've had to be creative as well as artists having to be creative. Your space right now in Bushwick, can you describe and talk about your space and how that came to be? Yeah, so um, it's an apartment gallery. It's my apartment. So it's the basement level of our building. And I also use it as my studio but not very often because there's always shows yeah. down there. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah so, so it's very much like a <laughs> DIY space. Um, it's, it's nice because it feels more welcoming when people come into the space. It's not your typical like white box um, cube. And that's like what we're striving to. I mean, we're trying to grow and get out of my basement because I want to work in there. And also we need to put our, Get but big girl pants but on. It's but it's good yeah. to have like something that's sustainable. That's really that's key what, because I feel like there's a lot of galleries that have really um, high goals and then yeah. they last like six months. Yeah. And just that's not, you know, it's not going to further the yeah. project. So. Well, that's what I was going to say is like, you know, I'm not I didn't have a background in art history or a curatorial background. Um, so 
my approach is definitely coming from like my museum education background and like really thinking about how do we engage audiences and, and create meaningful experiences um, with artwork. So um, we just tend to not think of ourselves as art dealers. So we don't like look at those people as much yeah. as an influence. And so yeah. we're just trying to figure out ways to be able to support exhibitions. I mean, we want to sell artists work. Don't get me wrong. We want to do that. But the most important thing is how can we just get them paid for their labor and get people to come and enjoy and have meaningful experiences with art. Mm -hmm. And so like when we're thinking about what we're going to do next, when we get out of the basement um, and into an actual commercial space, we still don't want it to be a, a white box cube you enter and feel like, mm -hmm. oh, this isn't for me. Um, we want to create, you know, like a little bar cafe and like an area for like programs and work like something that people are just want to go in there and hang out anyway. So we like get you with a, a can of beer and then you stay for the artist mm -hmm. lecture. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's really more of a cultural space. Yeah. We it's want less it, of a gallery. We want it. I think that, that, you know, in the very, in the nonprofit, it, in the nonprofit sector, it's all about creating communities and reaching communities. Yeah. And in the private sector, it's just capitalism. <laughs> yeah. And there's been and, a model for that. Like I remember going to uh, lectures at, Jeffrey Deitch a number of years ago, he invited philosophers. That's a model that can yeah. be repeated. And it's really engaging because it pulls in thinkers and makers from other fields. Yes. Mm -hmm. And broadens the community yeah. engagement with art. Yeah. And so that's that's where we're at is we really want to be able to create sort of a community, reach the community, create a cultural hub without having to be a nonprofit. And that's why we're thinking about um, you know, incorporating beverage sales, incorporating mm -hmm. retail, like things like that. But your space right now, it's a separate physical space from your apartment. So it really can function like a commercial gallery. It, it technically can't because. Uh, oh, not technically. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it's, you, a, you it's hold a residential like, space, but correct. It's separate from where she lives. Yeah. And yeah. So and we then, can have and people you, come and go. And yeah. you have like openings and do you have business hours or is it no, more by appointment? It's more by yeah. appointment. Yeah. Um, and then openings. And yeah. Events. Yeah. Yeah. And, and programs and things. Um, yeah. And like this year, we've been really trying to um, expand our reach and collaborate with other organizations and just folks out in the community. So that's why we've been hosting our programs off site, um, you know, yeah. collaborating with Bazaar Bar. Um, we also collaborate with Bridge and Tunnel and then doing things with Chishama and trying to look for other people to partner with. Mm -hmm. So Bridge and Tunnel was the recent weaving. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're, that they're was, it was called Art Brew mm -hmm. and it was a circular hand weaving event. It was a third in a series of mm -hmm. workshops with the textile artist, Jess McDonald. Well, that was her, uh, that was her first um, workshop with us. Yeah. So the next one's going to actually be bookmaking. So we're doing stuff that's like not super messy. You can be in a bar and hang out and do it, but it's again, like, you know, kind of a, a microcosm of that community space. Like people are in there like playing like Super Mario or whatever, but Smash Brothers. And then there's like women weaving and it's like, yeah. a whole, it, was it was a magical fun. moment the other night. And I was like, yeah. oh. it's a really cute brewery. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's local. Nice and uh, I really like uh, John, John. Rich. Rich. Oh, yeah. Rich. Rich, Rich. Yes. He's amazing. He's very community forward uh -huh. right and like very Both DIY. him and his wife yes who is actually she she's uh, an artist or she's a designer yes mm -hmm. she and is and uh i think a both of them are like teacher or arts, social worker yeah, yeah. Art, art supporters yeah art, yeah art philanthropists i would say yeah 
and uh, they provide this, their space for panel discussions as well. They su also supported my exhibition this last oh, spring at One Night Studios. Oh, that's right. They donated the whole keg of beer. But oh. I would like to talk about the weaving workshop just a little bit because it yeah. seems like fabrics and embroidery and knitting is, is a, has a huge comeback. And we were just doing mm. a review of Freeze uh, the other month. And uh, the, we talked about Luis Flores that was exhibiting there uh, with the big uh, knitted figures. Erin mm. Riley, mm -hmm. Brent Wadden, Elena Del Rivero, and Nari Ward mm -hmm. with of his course. shoelaced uh, We the People in Arabic mm -hmm. version. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a lot of uh, artists that are embracing that medium right now. Mm -hmm. And you work with it also mm -hmm. uh, in your own practice so what as as a curator and as an artist from these two uh, perspectives how do you approach it what's uh, what's the new thing that you are chasing uh, what's the, the new angle that you're offering as a curator looking at the fabrics textiles and well, knitting I mean I think that comes from my personal experience of working at the Museum of Arts and Design um, I used to work for the program the artist studios residency program and actually like sort of our our art brute making workshop is inspired by something they do there called mad makes where an artist takes some small part of their practice or not small part it could be a large part but they pare it down so that it's maybe something simple like maybe they have a really technical weaving process but they can come up with something that's um a similar technique that they can um present to the public to come in and try out. And it's very much a drop-in program, but you can sit and make as long as you want. It's free. Um, so I, what I really liked about that program is that the artists would actually like bring some of their own work and people would actually engage with their art and ask them questions and then hang out with the artists and just like chat, you know? So to me, that was like a way to create a meaningful experience and like learn more about an artist um, rather than just a traditional workshop. And so that that's sort of like the model for this crafting and craft beer sort of workshop that we're making is it's a very casual like hangout. We're like getting to know each other. And I also ask the artists to bring artworks to show and give a little show and tell. And let, they all ask them questions. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, it just it's I think it's appealing and it's a good entry point for people to do craft. I think sometimes um, being, you know, I want to take a drawing class. You feel like you have to have art an art background to do that. Yeah. But, and sometimes other artists will want to experiment with a technique that they yeah, haven't explored. Exactly. So it's mm -hmm. not just non-artists that would yeah. go to a workshop like that. Yeah, yeah. We've actually, I think most of the people that we've had that have come to the workshops have been the latter, like you're saying of um, people that are to some degree active artists and they're just looking to expand on a really accessible like beginner level these different types of skill sets especially the last one we just had the weaving one yeah for sure mm -hmm. a lot of people were like yeah i've done it a little bit before um you know but i really do this that the other i've been interested in incorporating it more into my practice um and you know this was a really great opportunity for me to just um you know without the pressure be able to um you know rediscuss those ways the way I can incorporate it into my practice and like yeah. play with it all. So yeah, it's a fun workshop. It's a really fun. And time. it's so fun to bring weaving and knitting into a bar traditionally mm -hmm. associated with feminine mm -hmm. leisure activity. Yeah. 
into a bar and recontextualize mm-hmm. it in that way and it becomes yeah. a, a public art performance i mean that's how yeah. i would in- interpret that yeah yeah in a I way like that. Uh, what was your experience from the july 10th uh, event Workshop? at the yeah at the bridge and tunnel yeah what people came and how many people was there was it a full bar it wasn't packed i think we had a more intimate session maybe eight people plus the um plus Jess, who was leading the workshop, and then we were there as well. Um, But it was nice because I think more than that, you know, it means that we have to, you know, have instruction from Jess previously, and um, we would end up taking over the whole bar. It's not a very big space. So it was nice to have it be a little bit more intimate so people could really um, engage individually with each other. And there was a lot of opportunity for Jess to really sit one-on-one with people and say, okay, like, which technique would you be interested in learning? Like, I can show you this technique. Um, and definitely, like, our patrons coming over and mm-hmm. and seeing, like, what we're doing. Yeah, that's and, true. Um, I can yeah. imagine Richard walking around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you have a current show at 440 Gallery called The Light in Park Slope, which is a national group show, which is on view uh, from June 26 to July 26, in which you're focusing on the light, uh, as perceived uh, through traditional mediums, representational painting, installation work, and multimedia. And you're looking at the light as a literal presence and as a metaphysical form. You make the case for the light being animated by human perception, so like light in visual terms, mm-hmm. as a crucial element in representational painting. That's from your statement, curatorial statement. Yeah, I think that was more like, that would probably be more Amy. Yeah, so we were invited to jury that show um, from Amy, who is one of the directors of the gallery. Um, It was a really great opportunity, and it was fairly collaborative on the curatorial side. Um, and then, I mean, that, that statement is accurate to what we were doing, but yes. I think that was more Amy looking at what we put together and then like and she responding responded. to it. Yeah, so I agree. I think that summed up to for the most part what we were considering when we were going through all of the submissions um it was a really fun process there were a lot of submissions and it definitely took us some time to go through and really nail down um the core theme that we were able to focus in on from within that larger umbrella concept of light because it's very again a broad term and how can you look at it you can look at it you know, in a plethora of angles. And there were a lot of wonderful submissions that were, you know, very um, traditional representational painting of like beautiful um, sunsets or these like really harsh um, urban landscapes with these gorgeous light, um, you know, swaths coming in through the buildings and through the windows. And, And they were beautiful. But I think the ones that really struck us were the ones that were very strange and a little bit eerie. There was a whole section in the back of the gallery that Kat and I were very adamant curatorially about making sure it was just so the works were extremely moody and there was a strange sort of, um, suburbia. What's, what's, um, yeah, yeah, dystopian. dystopian. It's a little bit dystopian. Yeah, I think we were just more interested in like, you know, there's the obvious like direction you can go with light, and we were like, well, what are, what are some ways like, what are some representations of light that people may not immediately think of, mm-hmm. and so we look looked at a yeah. lot of darkness. Yeah, you had mentioned earlier that that show actually was, became kind of dark. Yeah. We curated in depictions of fire, like 
bombings, um, the Satan piece, um, like really like the few portraits we had are like really weird. It's like people's skin really washed out. And like, there was this one painting, um, it was one of the largest ones that we ended up taking for the show as well of these two people that looked like they were sunbathing, but the palette was so washed out, so desaturated. It was very eerie and it, and it mm. felt almost like some strange alternate planet where, um, mm. yeah, it was very creepy. Right. And then the representational paintings, I looked online mm-hmm. and some of them had this almost Edward Hopper, like, sensibility yeah. of the light so that's the traditional approach i would presume definitely painterly almost cinematic but in yeah. that narrative representational yeah. sense yeah so that was really a variety a whole roster of these different approaches that was the to other the thing light. too we definitely wanted to when we were whittling it down to the final grouping we really wanted to make sure that we felt we had incorporated as many mediums as we could as well mm-hmm. and, and um because we did get a lot of photography naturally and, yeah, techniques and, of, and techniques of photography and then we did get a lot of representational painting um and um we, at the end we definitely wanted to make sure there was a, a good variety of mediums as well as um, mm-hmm. ways to sort of look at light or obviously the absence of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and we, we sort of curated almost like three mini shows yeah, within one show, like, like the one that was like the eerie, like stranger things, suburbia. Mm-hmm. And then there was this more like mysticism mm-hmm. sort of shamanic like approach. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, sort of the dystopian vibe with the, the images of like fire and, mm-hmm. and Satan is happy with Satan. Your progress. I can imagine that there's, a lot of organization that has to happen because you're doing it um, conceptually. Mm-hmm. You're not in front of the work, literally. So, and then imagining um, how these works are going to be situated next to each other, how they're going to interplay, and what kind of narratives they may or may not yeah. um, create. So, it's quite a process, but I guess you're used to it by now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would say we're pretty used to it by now. But there were definitely a lot of times when we're looking at the works and saying, oh, man, well, it, you know, it could be this combination or it could be this combination. Or if we keep this one, you know, we have to keep these three because they all make sense. And so it really is um, having to make those hard choices to, to uh, you know, just put your foot down and say this is the conversation that's happening between these works and, and that's it. And you have to move on. Um, and because, were there any surprises when you saw them physically in the space or did you have to make last minute adjustments or changes? No, I think there was really just maybe the one. There was a really beautiful photograph that we had seen from the very beginning. Oh. When we wanted to include it and it was in a very well done photo of this um it looked like a bunch of cliffs by a seaside and the light was absolutely beautiful. Definitely looked like large format. Yeah, it looked like a large format print. Photography. And um when it the work came to us there was the artist had made the choice to um, print it with a very large white border. Um, and the, the work was still very strong, but it definitely changed. Oh, the, that's so interesting. It definitely changed the way that you interact with it because the all the order would make change the piece. It totally did. I mean, I mean, it, it wasn't bad. Like we still were very happy to incorporate it, but it definitely um, I think it just created a slightly different conversation. Right. It's just like the presentation choice is like different than just seeing the like. Yeah, the you know, actual problem. image. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the and then there was some other. There was like, um, there was a piece that was like a, a lamp looking out outside in a home, mm-hmm. and it looks like a very rustic home. And so that artist chose to frame it and like what looked like a rustic piece of wood, and it's floating in the middle of the glass. And that choice was like really strong. And I was like, oh wow, that really like pushed this image 
further than mm -hmm. when it was just, you know, cropped on the computer. Yeah. And before we move on to the next question, I'd like to make a short announcement. We have a new announcement to make to highlight the new service provided by Radio Free Brooklyn. As you may already know, one of the few ways Radio Free Brooklyn is able to generate revenue to keep our station on the air is by offering affordable podcast recording services. If you're thinking about starting a new podcast or just want to get yours out of your kitchen, garage, basement, and into professional studio where it belongs, RFB offers a low hourly rate, which includes a technician. So all you need to do is show up and record. As a special thanks to our listeners, we are offering a special discount with a unique iArt New York code. It's I-A-N-Y. Type in I-A-N-Y on the website when you register for the first session, which is valid through September 1st. The Great Podcast Recording Studio is located on Bogart Street in Williamsburg. It's a very convenient location off of the L train, and it's available for podcast seven days a week from 8 a.m., to 11 p.m. And it's also ideal for recording voiceovers, news content, and audiobooks. Use the code IANY when scheduling your recording, and you'll get 20% off the cost of your first recording with us. Just go to radiofreebrooklyn.org slash podcast studio and enter your coupon code to get your discount. Again, that's radiofreebrooklyn.org slash podcast studio and use coupon code IANY before September 1st. Thank you so much, Radio Free Brooklyn. Thank you so much for being on our episode today. Yeah, yeah thank and you. I have one final quick question. Okay. Um, I figured out the pineapple logo. Oh. To our listeners, their logo is, is beautiful gold pineapple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, because paradise and pineapple, tropics, mm -hmm. and so that makes sense. And for our listeners, the spelling of Paradise Palace, they switch the C and the S. So it's Paradise with an a C and Palace with an S. So I wanted to ask you about that. There seems to be maybe a conceptual reason for that. Mm -hmm. Like I think I'm thinking more like mirroring. I don't know. It's actually more of a mean? pun, like oh, okay. Paradise. Um, we think about like our project sort of started thinking about the gambling that goes on with your artist career. And um, sort of the precarity of having an artist career of not knowing what's next or like not knowing how you're going to get paid. Um, and so that's what we were really thinking about is mm -hmm. like, how do we pay artists or like, how do we um, support artists career and like, how do we support their growth onto the next step? Yeah. Um, so we're thinking a lot about. Yeah, exactly. Like with the, the first iterations of the project were really rooted in this idea of mimicking the gamble that artists take um, in participating in the contemporary art world and into taking that um, leap of faith into mm -hmm. becoming a full-time artist. And I think that we wanted to really um, honor that when we were considering all of the models that we were trying to build with our very accessible artist first um, space. So yes. Yeah, so and then palace would be the the goal of like the, yeah, totally. the utopia, the utopia. Yeah. that will never right. reach. <laughs> well, that we hope we can one day reach. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. but yes. And then the pineapple is fun and it's glittery and, um, also pineapples. I mean, they have a very, um, complicated, complicated background in history, um, as to how they have now become, um, a symbol of hospitality, which we can mm -hmm. always discuss at mm -hmm. a later time. But, um, yeah. 
Yeah, and we try to be aware of of that complicated history as it relates to it. Um, but when we were first thinking about it, we just enjoyed that pineapples have become these symbols of hospitality and thinking about, you know, we wanted to be an open door for so many people. We want to be able to have a space that people can come into and feel really welcome in um, and that we can build community kind through. Kind of like a paradise. Kind of like a paradise. <laughs> exactly. So it was all extremely considered. Yes. I wanted to ask about selected uh, like artists from the uh, membership. Yeah. So we have a roster of, of different artists representing different mediums. And one of them is Lila Freeman, which has a drawing in a group show at Amo, uh, Amos Eno Gallery, uh, Social Policing of Gender and the criminal, Criminalization of Queerness, which is featuring Brooklyn community, incarcerated and formerly incarcerated individuals, as well as local and national artists reflecting on this critical theme. Would you talk a little bit about her work? Sure, yeah. Um, Lila is um, an artist uh, who's based in Brooklyn, and she also works for a branch of the Brooklyn Library. Mm -hmm. um, and she has been a supporter of our space probably from almost the yeah. very beginning. Um, she found us online and started coming to um, our programs and exhibitions and has has been a really strong supporter of everything that we've done. Um, and when we started our membership program that you're speaking a little bit about, Isabella, she was one of the first people to join um, and has been a continued supporter from that point forward. Um, it's been really wonderful getting the chance to work with her and um, support her as she continues her practice. Her work is very uh, rooted in interior observational painting Um and she actually had a piece that was in our um, open call show, Twist and Twine, that we've been talking about. Um, and the piece is probably one of the favorites of hers that she's done, um, favorites of mine that she's done. Um, and it's it's a funny painting because it's very subtle. Um, yeah, I think her, her work's all about her, subtleties. It's very subtlety. She is, does a lot of portraiture as well, mm -hmm. um, and she work with a lot of live models. Um, but the one piece that we were able to in include um, is from a series that she's been developing, um, observing plants as they slowly die in her apartment. And she's been painting them through that process. And so there's a lot of subtlety in it because at first glance, it just seems like a very quiet interior painting of a houseplant. But understanding all of the context behind that um, is, yeah, very, very strange. Mm. Um, and she's a wonderful person. Um, and we're looking forward to going to the opening later. Yeah. yeah and then you have... Uh, oh, absolutely. So the opening is tonight yes. at Amos Eno Gallery. Mm -hmm. And what's the address? It's um, 56 Bogart. Yeah, it's actually just right up the street. Oh, wonderful. Mm -hmm. Right. Let's let's check it out. Yeah, mm -hmm. you should come join us. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So we also have Michael Webster, who is a conceptual artist, and he exhibited extensively in Florida, Illinois, North Carolina. We also have Charles Sommer, who is focusing on minimalism and geometric abstraction. And then you also have design, like interior design. Where you, uh, so I think you combine the product design as well on your uh, website, or uh, like the Christie Ernest pro uh, product so, design portfolio. It's it's on the roster of your platform. So I, I are are you also considering designers? So our membership is open to anybody. So yeah, amazing. So yeah, yeah. So that's like. Um, Speaking of inclusiveness. Yeah. yeah. So it's open to anyone. And um, most, I mean, most people that are members are also artists. Christy um, 
has seemed to have uh, gone more into the design um, side of things, but she was the um, one of the runners up of our juried open call show last year. Yeah, and she's a pretty young artist. She's based in Brooklyn. Um, I believe at the time she had just finished her undergraduate degree when she had applied to our show, um, and the work that she showed with us was this really fantastic. Um, series of stools. Yeah, they were one of many sort of stools that were meant to be functional, um, and they are built out of found materials that she would collect from um, these debris-filled sidewalks that she would encounter around Brooklyn and in her neighborhood. Um, and I think it really sort of shaped the design practice that she's been focusing on a lot more lately. Mm-hmm. But then we also have just, you know, general supporters. Um I think Natalie is an independent um, publicist and curator. Natalie Levy. Yeah. And then we have people that, yeah, like Blake is a child psychiatrist. Um, I don't know if Ty is on there. Is Ty on mm-hmm. there? Ty is a DJ. Yeah, he's a DJ and event <laughs> producer. Charles um, is a very good friend of ours. And yeah. it's nice to have him as part of the membership service yeah. as well. Um, yeah, but exactly. Speaking about inclusivity, it's really wonderful that we just have it there as another, you know, branch of everything that we want to be able to grow. Um, well, and the membership program is more for supporting us. It's about creating community that supports each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the more that we can expand that, the more that we can offer more things to the community. Absolutely. And um, it gives artists a platform because yeah. they have yeah. their works online and that's yeah. always useful. And then um, you were speaking a little bit earlier, Isabella, about the flat files. I'll just also rope that in quickly. Um, yeah. And just one last thing about memberships, another really great perk because most of the people that are current members are also artists. We just started this, we started uh, a flat files system, which, um, for most galleries traditionally is a physical, um, cabinet that exists in a gallery that holds works on paper. Um, but we considering the nature of our project decided to do it as a digital flat file. And so any member that is also an artist is welcome to um, submit a a work that we can print on site um, and is available for purchasing online. Um, So that's another perk of being a member and is also another way that we can, you know, build accessibility and create opportunities for artists to get their work out there to um, patrons and, um, we also decided this year that we'll be doing a member exhibition at the end of the year in November. So until September 1st, people can sign up uh, to be a $10 a month member and it can be part of that exhibition. So we're Wonderful. excited to have that as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for Thank being you. here yeah. with us Thank today. You. And I just want to remind our listeners that their art curated cinema at the Art Bazaar is beginning again in September. September 8th, we'll have the artist Fatty Spice curate. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's pretty much every month in the beginning of the month. Yes, it's two times a month. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's twice a month. Every other Sunday. All right. Right. And we are coming back to More Than Skies and She Loves Me Not from their newest album, Everyone is a Loaded Gun. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.